Lord together is the time we get to spend in the Word of God knowing that His words are truth and He still speaks to us today through it. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so with that, I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open it up to the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 16. And I want to bring you a message this morning that I've entitled, The Pharisees and the Law. The Pharisees and the law. And I have to confess to you, as I prepare week after week, and I take in so much that for me to get out everything that's in my heart and in my mind is just nearly impossible. I always feel this great sense of inadequacy of what I bring to you on a Sunday morning. And so my prayer is that this is beneficial to you, this is helpful to you in understanding this text. But we find ourselves this morning in the middle of this chapter in a discourse from our Lord with the Pharisees that seems a little disconnected from the rest of the chapter. If you recall, Jesus began uh, chapter 16 teaching about a rich man in verse 1, and then he'll teach another parable beginning in verse 19 with that of another rich man. But right in the middle, we find the Pharisees grumbling and sneering over Jesus' statement that you cannot serve both God and wealth. But then it's almost as if suddenly Jesus begins talking about the law. And then what seems to be an even more bizarre twist, in verse 18 we find him talking about divorce. Now if we were just to sit down and read chapter 16 verse from verse 1 through verse 31, we might feel as if these verses in the middle here that we're looking at today are disconnected from the rest. We go from money to law to divorce to money again. But although they appear at first glance to be disconnected and detached from one another, there is actually one unifying theme. And my goal this morning is to help you see clearly that unifying theme. So with that, I want us to read this passage of Scripture together so that we can have it before our hearts and our minds. We're in Luke chapter 16. We're going to read from verses 13 through 18 for the last time this week. And then we'll pick up the parable of the rich man and Lazarus next week. But I want to invite you to stand with me if you're able to do so for the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 13 of Luke chapter 16, God's inspired, inerrant, and holy Word says this, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John... Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, 
And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Let's pray. Father of all grace, we thank you for your divine mercy in giving us your word and your revealing yourself to us through it. We're grateful for this time that we can spend in hearing it and studying it and knowing it so that by it we can have our lives transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Help us to prepare our minds for action, to be sober in spirit, and to fix our hope completely on the grace that is brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The whole doctrine of justification by faith and the whole doctrine of salvation by grace rests on the principle that the law of God has been fulfilled completely, perfectly, and wholly by Christ and Jesus Christ alone. All of the law's demands, all of the law's prohibitions, all of the law's requirements were comprehensively and thoroughly fulfilled in the obedient life of Jesus Christ. And no one on this planet, no one else in this world has ever met the righteous requirements of the law other than the great lawgiver, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as there is only one origin of the world, one origin of the entrance of sin and death into the human race, one standard of morality, one diagnosis of the problem, one way of salvation, one gospel, one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one mediator, one narrow gate, one end of the age, one final judgment. There is only one, just one, who has ever perfectly, entirely, and comprehensively kept the law of God, and that is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Not just in his actions, but also within his heart and his devotion as well. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ will only make sense to someone or anyone at all unless they first know the bad news. And the bad news is this, that the law of God demands absolute obedience. The law demands perfection. The law demands unquestionable conformity. And that's because the law of God is a revelation of God's moral character. It reveals his holiness. It reveals his will for the creature to be able to enter into his presence. And as such, the requirements of the law is nothing short of absolute perfection and obedience. James chapter 2, verse 10 says this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. In other words, what he's saying there is God does not grade on a curve. God doesn't give a test for extra credit. 
And God doesn't hand out participation trophies even if you fail to meet His holy standard. And so if you fall short of just keeping one law, you are just as guilty as if you had broken them all. Not because you actually broke every law, but because you actually treated with contempt the authority of the one who gave the law and who violated the unity of that law. Obedience to the law isn't like horseshoes and hand grenades. That if you just get close, that's going to be good enough. No, God's righteous standard, God's holy law, demands absolute perfection from every single human being that is under the law. And the penalty for not keeping this law is eternal death. And you and I aren't even able to get past the first requirement of the Ten Commandments that you shall have no other gods before me. But it gets even worse. The law does not save. It's powerless to bring you into a right standing with God. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says this, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That verse right there ought to be indelibly impressed upon our minds to give us an understanding of what the function of the law is. The law does not save. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Rather, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This is so basic and so important that it's repeated again in chapter 4, verse 15 of Romans when he says, For the law brings about wrath. In chapter 5, verse 10 in Romans, it continues, The law came in that the transgression might increase. The law came in so that the transgression or the understanding of sin might increase. There was an understanding of sin from the Garden of Eden, but there was an increased understanding of sin when the law came through Moses. In fact, in the next verse, Romans 5.21, it said that sin reigned in death. And that's because the violation of the law, which is sin, always produces death. And in Romans 7, 7, Paul says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, it says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we, we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Again, it is an unmistakable, and all of these things tell us exactly the same thing. There is no salvation in the law. There is no salvation in keeping the law because the law cannot save. But the good news of the gospel is that what God requires of you and me, Jesus Christ provides. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4 says, For what the law could not do, what it was as it was through the flesh, weak as it was rather through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh 
so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Galatians 4, chapter, uh, rather, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, a verse you're all familiar with. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions as sons. What we have failed to do in keeping of the law, Christ did not fail, and He kept God's law perfectly. And so in His mercy, God has provided in Jesus Christ a great substitution, a blessed exchange according to which Jesus can stand in for us with God. He offered His perfect righteousness, His perfect keeping of the law in our place of our failure, and His own life's blood in place of ours. And when we receive the mercy of God offered to us in Christ by faith, His perfection is imputed or credited or reckoned to us, and our sinful nature is imputed or credited or reckoned to Him. This is called double imputation, and it's laid out in 2 Corinthians 5.21, when He said, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. By faith, the very worst of me is transferred to Him, and the very best of Him is transferred to me. And so God provided in Christ what God demanded from us in the law. And so at the end of the day, you and I gain so much more in Christ Jesus than we ever lost in Adam. You gain not just a little righteousness, but you gain the perfect righteousness of Christ. You gain complete forgiveness of your sins. You gain freedom from the curse that comes in the law, and you gain eternal life with Almighty God. And so the law is absolutely critical to being able to understand the gospel. You've got to know the bad news before you can know the good news. And as Spurgeon once said, to tamper with the law is to trifle with the gospel. The law was authored by God. It was affirmed by the prophets, and it was accomplished by Jesus Christ. And no one will ever know the sweetness of God's grace, unless they first have tasted the bitterness of being condemned by the law. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher from England, once said, you can have a psychological belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, but a true belief in Him sees Him who delivers us from the curse of the law. This is what Christ Jesus does for us. He delivers us, He redeems us from that curse. And if there was ever a group of people who saw themselves as the great upholders and the keepers of the law, it would have had to have been the Pharisees. They prided themselves in keeping of the law, but it was only an external keeping of the law before men. Now, if you remember, the Jews claimed that there were some 613 separate laws. And that law is not an arbitrary number. 
I want you to listen to this and get this. They came up with that number because there are 613 letters in the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments. Each Hebrew letter represented a different law. I don't know what the connection is, but that's just the way they did things. It's not too much different from people today where they get into numerology and they try to take a secret code in the Bible to understand something about Jesus or a prediction of His second coming or something like that. But this is nothing more than rabbinic letterism, as it used to be called. But they had one law for every letter in the Ten Commandments that comes from Exodus chapter 20. But then they divided that law into two parts. They said there was 248 affirmative laws, one for every part of the human body. And then there were 365 negative laws, one for every day of the year. And so they said, one for every day of the year, one for every member of the human body. You add that all up, and it comes to 613, which just happens to be the number of letters within the Ten Commandments. But then they went even further. And they divided those 613 laws into what they called light laws and heavy laws. And the light laws were semi-optional, but the heavy ones were binding. Meaning, you can't keep all 613, you've got to have to break one somewhere. And so what they did is they lightened up on some and they got heavy on some of the others. And this is why Jesus told them in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 4, he reminded them, he says, you know what? You tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. So they were in the heavy, and they were in the light, and there was a lot of debate about what was light and what was heavy, what was really important, what wasn't so important, and so forth and so on. But then, you add those 6,000 additional regulations that they created in the Mishnah. And then suddenly, they started to become very, very selective about which ones they followed and which ones they didn't. And this is why Jesus said to them in Matthew 23, in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. They were satisfied in themselves on focusing on the externals and the incidentals, and they willfully neglected the deeper purpose and the spiritual meaning of the law. And so when Jesus makes a statement to them that they can't serve both God and wealth in their minds, they thought that this was preposterous. They thought to themselves that they could do both. They didn't see a problem or a conflict of conscience about pursuing money and being godly simultaneously. But Jesus says to him, you may look good on the outside before men, but God sees on the inside where it counts, namely the heart. Because what they could not grasp hold of is that their love for money and their desire of it amounted to nothing short of idolatry. And really, that is the unifying theme of this chapter, is what are the affections of your heart set upon? Because if there is anything that you love more than God, if there is anything that you serve more than God, 
If there is anything that you desire more than God, if there is anything that you treasure more than God, that is that which has become an idol in your life. And Jesus tells them that which they seem as esteemed among men, God sees as detestable. It's an abomination. Their best-looking good works were of no more value in the eyes of God than a pile of nasty rags soiled and stained with bodily fluids, as Isaiah 64, 6 describes for us. And so in rapid-fire succession, in just a few words here, Jesus sums up everything about the law, the gospel, and true righteousness. First of all, in verse 16, he says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. In other words, what Jesus is telling the Pharisees is, is that the old covenant has given way to the new. The coming of Christ marked a major shift in the course of human history. And John, who was the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, got to also be the first representative of the New Testament era of fulfillment. He was the bridge between the old and the new. He had one foot in each era. And everyone from Adam up to John the Baptist were looking for and awaiting the appearance of the Christ. But John was the forerunner of the Messiah and not only predicted the coming of the Messiah, but he also got to witness it firsthand. What John did was preparatory, but what Christ did was fulfillment. But notice, after John, it says that the gospel of the kingdom has been preached. The king of the kingdom had arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. Right from the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus announced that he had been sent by God to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. And that it was good news because it meant that grace had come. What the law required, what the prophets affirmed, would be completely and perfectly fulfilled in the life and the death of Jesus Christ. But then he uses this interesting phrase. He says that everyone is forcing his way into it. In other words, there is some exertion here that is taking place. In other words, you might say, you must strive to enter into the narrow gate. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. You must love Him more than father, mother, brother, sister, husband, wife, or children, and yes, even your own life. You must seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. You must be willing to take pains and make sacrifices for your soul. You must be, uh, set your affection on heaven above and not on the things of this world. You must prepare your mind for action. You must discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Because, listen, no one who is a casual and who is nonchalant about the things of God will ever, 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 ever grow to know Him and love Him more deeply and more intimately. Then in verse 17, he says, But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. In other words, there is a permanence to the law. And not even just the smallest little stroke 
is wiped away. It's much like you and I saying in the English language that not one I will go undotted. It's that small of a stroke. But there is a permanence to the law of God. Jesus said as much in Matthew 5, 17 and 18. He said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. The psalmist wrote in what we read this morning in 119 verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. This is not, this gives me pain to love your law. This is affection. Oh, how I love your law. Even Paul said in Romans seven twelve. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But right here, Jesus is putting it all into perspective. And what he says, says to the Pharisees, in effect, is this. This is nothing new at all. I'm going to reiterate to you, and I'm going to fulfill the whole Old Testament law. I will not set aside one jot or one tittle of that law until it is all fulfilled, and it is not going to pass away. And this is a direct confrontation to their thinking. He's telling them that he's not going to lower the standard of the law, but he's going to raise it back up to where it belonged. And so what happened was this. Their thinking was that their standard was so high, someone would have to lower it. We've got all these laws that we're following, at least as far as men can see. But in his thinking... It was, it was that it had been dragged down so low that someone needed to bring it back up again. And why? Because they had taken and turned the internal law into an external thing. And beloved, we have to be careful of this as well. We can look at our church attendance. We can look at our giving. We can look at our Bible reading. We can look at our deeds that we do before our brothers and sisters in Christ and say that we are fine with God. But what matters is, what kind of person are you outside of this church? What kind of person are you when you are alone and it's just you and God? Do you still have that same desire for piety and holiness and communion with God? That's what matters. They turn the internal law into an external thing. And he's going to drive it back inside to where it belongs, which is why verse 18 is here. In fact, he had a greater commitment to the law of God than even the most scrupulous scribe or Pharisees. And why shouldn't he? Because he's the great lawgiver. And so what he is saying here in this passage is that he supports the authority of the Old Testament, the whole thing. Now, what people get buggered up about in understanding the law is what they should do in relation to the law. But what you need to understand is that since the coming of Christ, virtually everything has changed. The blood sacrifices have ceased because Christ fulfilled all that they were pointing towards. He was the final, unrepeatable sacrifice for sin. 
Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The other things that have changed is the priesthood that stood between the worshiper and God has ceased. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 and 24 says, The former priests were many in number, because they, prevented, they were prevented by death from continuing in that office. But he upholds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. The physical temple has ceased to be the geographical center of worship. Now Christ himself is the center of worship. He is the place. He is the tent. He is the temple where we meet God. And therefore now Christianity has no geographical center. No Mecca, no Jerusalem. And if you're an Anabaptist, it's not in Pensacola, Florida. John chapter 4, verse 21 and 23 says this. Jesus said to her, woman... Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The food laws that set Israel apart from the nations have been fulfilled and ended in Christ. Mark chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. (coughs) Excuse me. Jesus said to them, Excuse me again. Do you not see what whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? And thus he declared all foods clean. But God's moral law in the Ten Commandments continues on. In fact, they are all reiterated in the New Testament, excluding the Sabbath. But the ceremonial laws and the civil laws were shadows of the things to come. And they, fu- they found all of their fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But then in verse 18, he drives home his point about the eternalness of their following of the law. And if he first hit them in their wallet, the next thing he's going to send to them is a blow to their hard hearts. He says in verse 18, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. The famous Rabbi Hallel, who flourished during the first century B.C., during the reign of King Herod I, he taught that a husband had the right to divorce his wife if she served him food that had been burned or overcooked. Another rabbi, Akaba, who flourished during around 110 A.D., he permitted a husband to divorce his wife if he found someone prettier to marry. Now, We need to understand that this is not all of Jesus' instruction on marriage and divorce. And some of you may be saying to yourself, well, aren't there some exceptions? And the answer to that question is yes, there are. But before we try to run to 1 Corinthians 7 about the exception of being married to an unbelieving spouse, or before we turn to Matthew 19 and we look at the exception clause for the purpose of fornication... What we need to do here is we need to feel the weight of what Jesus is teaching here because that is exactly what He's trying to do with these Pharisees. 
Because what Jesus is doing here is exposing the hardness of their heart in marriage. That's what he told them as well in Mark chapter 10, as why Moses permitted a certificate of divorce. He said it was because of the hardness of your heart. And even though they have been the ones accusing Jesus about breaking the Sabbath, they have been the ones grumbling and complaining about Jesus hanging around with tax collectors and sinners, and they are the ones that are sneering about Jesus' teaching about serving God or money. Jesus turns them on their heads, and he says to them that your understanding and your practice of marriage and divorce is actually sinful in the eyes of Almighty God. And so what Jesus is doing here is driving them back into understanding the true law of God. And that's probably something we need to have in our day as well. Why do we have so much rampant choice, uh, divorce within the church? Could it be that churches today are not preaching the law of God? Why do we have so much idolatry in the church? Could it be that we, are, we lack the preaching of the law of God in church? People today are embracing a form of Christianity which is really pseudo-Christianity that tells people all you need to do is just believe in Jesus and nothing else matters there. You can do whatever you want after that. You can have your own personal church and your own personal home with your own personal internet pastor if you want to. You can do what you want, listen to what you want, believe what you want, do what you want. And it is called the free grace movement. And it is alive and well in this day and age. But what we need to do in this day is to grasp hold of an understanding of the law of God. And to look at the law of God and obey the law of God for the same reason that Jesus did. It was not for simply rule-keeping. The reason that Jesus kept the law of God was because He delighted in loving the Father. He delighted in obeying his father. It was out of love that Jesus completely obeyed the law of God. What in the world is it about Christ and his work that makes us look at the law of God with disdain? Yes, it condemns us, but it should drive us to Christ. That's what it is for. It is a tutor to lead you to Christ. Psalm 119, again, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How in the world can David say that then, but we can't say that now? Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my tastes. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Beloved, we need to know the law of God. We need to love the law of God. And when we see that we cannot meet the law of God, we need to look to Christ and give thanks to Him that He fully, perfectly, and completely obeyed the law of God on our behalf.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the person and the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his righteousness that he gives to us on the basis of faith. We thank you for the right standing that we can have before you because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Father, help us to treasure this in our hearts. Help us to love this and delight in it. And to help us, Lord, to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the treasure that we have in it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.